So this morning, first, I'd like to uh, look at one uh, common question uh, that came. So in answer to the question, is there ever an answer, this evening Martin answered no. And in the first lecture, Stephen spoke of the experience of the strangeness of him, and later of having diver, di direct knowing, and also having the question being the marrow of your bone and the pore of your skin. Are we not setting out to have a transcendent experience, awakening, enlightenment, absolute Buddha nature? If so, don't we have to intend to have that experience, even though we don't know what it is? So I will uh, partly answer the, the first part of the common question, and then Stephen will partly answer this evening, and tomorrow evening I will uh, totally talk about the second part. So first, so because uh, tomorrow evening I want to talk about meditative experiences, awakening, and different things of that nature. So I will not go at length here. I want just to, to look at the first part, which is about uh, the answer. Uh, and actually, yesterday evening, I answered yes and no. No in terms that we're not going to get a definite, fixed answer. But yes, insofar that through the practice, we might get a sort of answer which, that's what I mentioned yesterday, is more like a processual answer. It's kind of more like an experience of something than in a way the definition of something. And in that way, through the practice of, I mean, that's why Korean song is actually in a way different from the way uh, the koan are used in Japanese Zen, where now you have a whole series of passing koan in the Rinzai Zen system in Japan, inspired by Hakuin in the 17th century. And so in, in Korea, you don't have that system of passing koan, of getting answers to the question. And in Korea, they have this idea that if you cultivate the sensation of questioning, then in a way, if you understand, break through uh, one question, then you break through the whole of them. So they have a little different take on it. But in terms of answer, uh, it's not like kind of like, uh, I'll talk more about this tomorrow, the way they look at it, it's not like you have kind of, it's more like what the way they look at it in Korea is that you develop more and more and more and more a sensation of questioning. And then the way they see it is that then it bursts and then you have some understanding, breakthrough, awakening. But I'll talk more about this tomorrow. So what I wanted to look at first uh, this morning was back to something I mentioned, the song song jok jok, the bright bright quiet quiet, that my teacher insisted that we really needed to cultivate together. And so what I like to do now first is to look at two quotes from the Korean Zen tradition about that. 
about this kind of uh, how the two come together. So this is uh, the first quote. If one remains in deep calm without being aware, it means sinking into dullness. So here we say, in a way, one part of the meditation, what I would call the samatha part, is to develop anchoring, and through that, <coughs> you might develop deep calm. So personally, I would say deep calm, yes, but possibly also spaciousness, but we'll see. But if you are just calm, actually that might turn into dullness. And there is an interesting passage in the early text of the time of the Buddha, where he says, if you put too much effort, you might become restless. If you cultivate too much concentration, you might become dull. So it's not saying that anchoring is not a good idea, but how much and how. So it's kind of looking at that. So how the elements are balanced. And if one remains aware without being calm, it means becoming entangled in one's thought. So if there is, you could nearly say, too much brightness, so that the, the element of brightness is too much in the forefront, then actually this might lead to agitation and actually having more thought. So each on its own, in a way, is not enough. If one is in a state of being neither aware nor calm, then one is not only entangled in thought, but also submerged by dullness. <laughs> so this you might have experienced at times. <laughs> so what is looking at is that each, each of these elements, calmness and brightness, are bringing <coughs> something to the practice. So if you have too much calm, you might get dullness. If you have too much brightness, you might get entangled in thought. But if you have neither, then you really come out <laughs> a little lost in a fog, in a way. So then that's the, the second quote. Clear awareness and deep calm are beneficial. But clear awareness with delusion will not work. Deep calm and clear awareness are appropriate, but deep calm with absent-mindedness is not appropriate. How can any delusion arise if calm does not let in any distraction and awareness does not leave any room for unskillful thinking? So then we start to see the function of each here. So what he says first is, Clear awareness with delusion will not work. So that in a way, the clarity has to be embedded in some calm, in some space. So it's kind of like, it's not just any clarity, because we could be, I mean, we could have a very bright mind and have kind of, you know, uh, 10 ideas a mile a minute. But those ideas, are they ethical? Are they caring and careful? 
are they skillful? Because it's not brightness for its own sake. It is brightness for toward wisdom and compassion. So the brightness is within a specific context. So it's kind of a skillful brightness, a skillful awareness. But deep calm with absent mindedness is not appropriate. So here it says we could be in deep calm, but with no clarity. So Actually, it would feel really good because we would be in deep calm, no thought, and really feel you know calm. But how is that going to be useful? Like I was reading a, an article recently, and it was how this person had an accident and uh, something happened to his cortex, and he was really not the same. But what was interesting is that when they anesthetize him for some operation twice for about an hour or a few days after each operation with the anesthetic he was totally fine like something kind of uh, was better for a while was reconnected or disconnected and it reminded me recently la last year I had a, I just had a very minor thing but I was anesthetized for it and I woke up from it and it was a fantastic experience <laughs> <laughs> It was, and whenever I remember it, I mean, it was very weird because I woke up and uh, I started speaking English to the French nurse, which they <laughs> started to speak about consciousness <laughs> in English. Um, but I had just been at this big scientific gathering, lots of talk about consciousness and things, so I was really kind of, I, mean, I was really kind of observing what was going on coming out of the anesthetic and all. But it was amazing. Because I felt like I had been in this really <laughs> calm place because everything was uh, unplugged, basically. There was no plugging. So it, was, it felt fantastic in a way because there was no experience. But I mean, is it, I was thinking, you know, do I want to be anesthetized for the rest of my life? Possibly not. <laughs> So I think this is a little the, the thing about this point here. It's not that calm is not a good idea. Of course, when we feel calm, it's wonderful. It's a wonderful experience. But actually, the calm we want to develop here <coughs> is an alive, a clear, a wise, an active calm in a way. So it's having the two elements of quietness and activity and skillfulness and compassion within it. And then it finished, how can any delusion arise if calm does not let in any distraction? This is an interesting point. How can any delusion arise if calm does not let in any distraction? So this is actually the function of anchoring. That the calm is not actually about stopping the functioning of the thought. But the calm is about, do I need to think this thought? It's, that's why I think of the calm as more spaciousness, insofar that 
the point really of the anchoring, of the coming back, is really you come back to the question, you come back to the breath, you come back to the sound, and you're really not feeding your mental habits. But it doesn't mean that you cannot creatively plan or think, etc. I think it's really to see, to, to me, I think what the calm does is dissolve over the time what I would call unnecessary, unskillful thinking. Like, I used to have, I'm a very good organizer, and I used to really have a tendency to plan, plan a lot, many different ways, a lot in advance, and things like that, you know? Until one day, I, I was suddenly I found myself with really bad stomach pain because for my many years ago it was our first time going to teach in South Africa for two months and I kept planning about all this and that when I realized that all this over planning was actually quite bad for my stomach and then I had to choose between the over planning and my stomach and I choose mm, I prefer no pain than indulging in this planning. And I realized that actually I did not need to over plan. I still could plan a bit, but not this mega non-stop planning, remembering the planning, the planning of the planning. And, and it was such a relief, it was such a relief to stop planning in that way. And so I think it's to see that when the, 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 the calmness is going to help us in not immediately be taken over by the habit, and, but actually help us to come back to the creative functioning. I want to plan, I do it, it's not useful, I leave it. So it's really back to this skillfulness. This is not stopping all thinking, but is when is it useful or not? So that's what the, the anchoring is about. That's what the coming back is about. So slowly, slowly, we can see the difference in a way between skillful thinking and unskillful thinking. And to kind of have more of a creative space, creative choice with that. And then the last one. And awareness doesn't leave any room for unskillful thinking. So the first one does not let in any distraction. And the other one, unskillful thinking. I'm sorry, I can was kind of mixing them up. So the fact is, if you come back, if you anchor, you come back, you come back, then you become more aware of your thought because there is more space, there is more calmness. Then with the awareness, you can see, oh, this is skillful, this is unskillful. So, you know, each has a function, the anchoring as a function to creating space, and the awareness as a function to see clearly, is it skillful, unskillful? So the two, in a way, are combined. So that what we kind of been trying to develop is what I call, what we develop over time is creative awareness and creative awareness which is in a way nurtured by this clear awareness, 
and this deep calm. And then I wanted to say something a little bit about <coughs> deep calm. In terms of yesterday, I was talking about the sensation. Like, could we have the focus on another places in the body? And actually, reflecting afterward, I thought that I would still recommend, if it does not is problematic physiologically, to focus on the belly for some time before we extend it to other parts. Because what I found through this uh, questioning from the belly is that over time in my daily life, when I had kind of suddenly things would be a little difficult, I would feel a little agitated or things of that nature, then generally what I did to help myself was to go in the belly. And <coughs> in the belly, it's like I found some calm there. I found some groundedness. Instead of being caught up up here by the agitation, I felt I could go to the belly, find the calm, the groundedness, and then it was kind of like the agitation would be encompassed in a wider perspective. And so I wonder if there is something about that, focusing on the belly, focusing on the seat, so that it kind of helps us to create a certain ground, and we're nearly physiological ground within ourselves. And I found nowadays I need less to do that, I need less to go there. And what I found is that then nowadays I just go into the whole body instead of just in the belly. I mean, recently, I uh, live upstairs, my mother lives downstairs, and then often she calls me, and she's losing her memory, but very badly. So one minute to the next, sometimes. And so, you know, she had a new uh, earphone with the TV, but it, it needed one more thing. And so, you know, I showed her, I read, write things around so she can notice how to do things, and then she rings the bell, and she said, the TV doesn't work. We need to buy a new TV. So I go down, and, you know, I try to, because what I try to do is to make, try to find a way to, for her to remember, so she doesn't always need me to uh, be her memory. And so I could feel part of me like, what can she remember? And I know this really doesn't help. But if there is any agitation, the memory goes even more capable. And that's what I do nowadays, when I feel the little like impatience or whatever, just, just being aware of the whole body. Just in a way, being of the whole body. And in that moment, it's kind of like the clear awareness connecting to the calm and just calming the whole system and then kindly showing the pattern and different things that we can move on. So I think this is why I think it's important in a way, the focus in the body, and then we have to find how it works for ourselves. Then the thing I wanted to suggest today, of course you can continue with the breath, or you can continue with the question. But there is a, also another practice which I, which I think is very complementary with the, with the breath and the questioning that you can also find to some degree, though it's kind of really like a side note, uh, the listening meditation. 
which can also make the connection with the inside vipassana meditation. And that's what I would recommend today, especially as we are here and there are lots of sounds we can listen to. And I think what is interesting here with the listening meditation is in terms of the anchoring. With the breath, with the question, we have a little the impression that the anchor is inside ourselves. When with the listening, so it's kind of a more narrow anchor, one could say. But with the listening, this is a wide open anchor. And I think it's very important to have a wide open anchor also. So that we don't just think of concentration, focusing, anchoring as narrowing the attention <coughs> on one point. But we also think of concentration, focusing, anchoring, actually expanding and using a wider perspective to anchor. Because I think in daily life, we also need that very much. And so in the listening meditation, generally the idea is that we just listen. So we find, again, a comfortable posture. We can have the eyes closed or half open, as generally. And then it's like we open our whole being to the music of life, to the sound that appears. So you might have sounds in the body, you might have sounds in the room, you might have sound outside the room. And this is a practice because we try to be with sound a little differently, a tiny bit differently. So the first thing that happens with sound is generally perception. So perception is automatic. So we're not trying to stop to perceive the sound. But what we try not to do as much is from perception, sound of a bird, sound of a cough, sound of the stomach, we don't comment. So you, you are here, you hear the bird with calmness and clarity. And of course, you know, ah, that's the sound of a bird. But the idea is not the definition of the sound. The idea is really just to hear the sound as it arises and as it disappears. So if you can stay as close as you can to the sound itself and not go into the commenting of it, because generally we go into bird sound, mm, I like this. Then if you go into birds, mm, is this kind of a black bird or is it this, that or another? Or you might go into these rooks, you know, these Gaia house rooks really, you know, and uh, whatever. And so it's really to listen to the sound without grasping, without rejecting, without commenting, without analyzing. Also, this is not about listing. This is not about telling me at the end of the day the 1,253 sounds you have heard. This is really not about listing. It's just you, in the moment, being aware of the sound. And then, of course, what is wonderful with listening meditation is that it immediately makes us aware of the change, aware of how the sound arises and passes away. But also if a sound continues, 
Like in the evening, I noticed yesterday evening there seemed to be a little radiator sound. That when the sound continues, if we go inside the sound, it changes within itself. So kind of using the two elements of anchoring in the sound and experientially being aware of the sound, how we change within itself and come and go. Then in order to do this, again there are different ways to do it. One way is to be aware of the most prominent sound. Like there are different sounds, and I'm not asking you to be equally aware of every sound to the same degree. That's not the idea. But just sometimes some people find it, that's what I do, to just anchor in the more prominent sound. Then it goes, then the next prominent sound. That's generally what I do. But as long as you don't wonder what is the most prominent sound now, this is not about this either. <laughs> It's not about calibration. <laughs> so you can do that if you find it useful, or you can focus in the space in which the sound happens. So then, there, you kind of just be aware of the, you could say the silence, but the silence is nearly as a <coughs> sound itself, but you then more aware of the silence, and then within the silence, when sound appear in the silence and then disappear. So then you could anchor in the silence, be aware of the sound, back to the silence. So again, you have to see what works for you. But the idea is not for you to be confused and try to kind of, you know, become distracted by the sound, but more about being embedded, also being open to something outside of ourselves, and of course, you can do this practice with your breath. You can start with the breath, and then open to sound, and then back to the breath. You can do the same with the questioning. You can do the questioning, open to the sound, back to the questioning. Or you can just do the sound and nothing else. And so then it's back to, yesterday I mentioned foreground and background. And so what we try, I would say there are two different types of concentration generally suggested is what I call exclusive concentration and inclusive concentration. <coughs> exclusive concentration is trying to push things away. I'm just with the breath and I push everything away, sound included. I mean, I know some people when they do meditation, sometimes they even sit with earplugs so that there is nothing but them being with the breath. What personally I recommend more is inclusive concentration, because I think it's more practical for daily life. And so that you have something in the foreground, so you have the breath, the question, or the sound in the foreground, and then behind you have different level. You have maybe some sensation, some thought, or whatever. And those things arise and pass away, as in the foreground you anchor in the breath, the question, or the listening. <coughs> so also seeing how sometimes, because I know a lot of you have been told, uh, possibly I am a bad teacher, but 
Lots of you might have been told, you know, stay with one thing. Don't distract yourself with different things. I know lots of my friend teachers say that. Mm. But I say, well, since all of them say that, I can say something different. <laughs> Balance it out. Then you can find for yourself. But personally, what interests me is basically quietness and clarity, is attention. What you are attending to, as long as it's skillful, I don't think matters so much. What I think is important is anchoring in attention. So that you can have this in the foreground, then that can move to the background, this goes in the foreground, but you're still anchoring in the experience, anchoring in awareness. So to me, that's what is uh, important. So to see how it works for you, and uh, so that's what I wanted to suggest. Are there any questions about this? Yes. I'm sorry, can you? I can't put you this idea of inclusive concentration. And it, it just seems to me um, that it's, it, I mean, it, it's obviously difficult, but it's very difficult if you have a, obviously a tendency to uh, get distracted. And I was wondering whether there becomes a, a point where inclusive concentration sort of works and you have to sort of calm the mind. I'm not interested in your own suggesting this three or four days in, so do you have to still the mind at a certain point before we can manage inclusive concentration? I don't know. You see, I think this is for you to find out because, you see, first is what do we mean by concentration? You see, what do we mean by that? Do we mean by concentration that there is no thought or that we are calm? Are we looking at the cultivation of the concentration or are we looking at the effect of the concentration? I feel that when we talk about calm and quietness, I think we're talking a lot about the effect of the concentration. When personally, when I talk in terms of foreground and background, I'm really talking about the cultivation of it. And so, personally, the way it seems to me is that, I don't know, I, I personally have never tried this exclusive concentration, so I have no idea. Possibly it works very well. <laughs> so, I mean, you try it for yourself, because to me, since the first day I practiced in Korea, I, I mean, I could not have formulated then but to me, what happened was that, you know, I would try to ask the question. And always in the background, you have all kinds of things. You have the sensation, you have the feeling, you have the thought, and then some are more prominent than others. And then the aim is generally, you know, a thought might be more prominent, take you away, or a sensation might be more prominent, take you away, or an emotion might be more prominent and take you away. And then, so you have this, what generally kind of seem to be taking you away. And then you have the anchor. And for me, for 10 years, it was a question. So coming back to the question, coming back to the question. And to me, it did not seem to matter 
Maybe I should tell of my breakthrough in terms of how I feel about concentration. Okay, I was sitting in meditation very early on in Korea, maybe my third or fourth, and I was by myself. Finally, everybody went. I was by myself. Finally, I was going to be able to really meditate. Nobody was going to bother me. And then within two weeks, I realized it had nothing to do with them and all to do with me. So I was sitting in meditation all by myself, trying to question what is this, what is this. And I had the impression that I just was not concentrating. And I had that impression that it was not worth it. What's the point of sitting here, just getting distracted again and again and again? This is not working. Possibly I could do something more useful. Since I was on my own, I could do that. So I stood up and I decided it would be more useful to read a book, a, a sutta. At least I would learn something instead of sitting with all this. So, so I opened the book and I could not read the book. And then I realized I was actually fairly concentrated. I had got into a space of concentration but not as I had imagined it. And that's where after that I, I did not really worry about did I have lots of thought or not or whatever. Because I realize often we have this idea. I know in some tradition there are very strong ideas about concentration and how it is and everything like that. But I don't come from this tradition. But that experience showed me that even though you have the impression that you, have, you are distracted, actually to some degree you are concentrating because to some degree you come back. So you come back to the anchor. So then the way it seems to me is that you, you have the anchor like the, the breath, the sound, or whatever. And then it seems to me that behind it, you have different things popping up. And then sometimes you take them up, sometimes you don't, depending on many different things. That's the way it can, so that's why personally, it doesn't seem to me that this inclusive concentration is difficult because I think that's what we all do already. That's what I would say. But then, I am not saying that what I'm talking about is the concentration, like for example, a certain Burmese teacher like Pao Krimpoche talks about. Definitely not. But what I'm talking about is anchoring enough in the experience that actually you are in this moment slightly differently. And one way I call this is what I call the effect. That if you notice, even if you had a sleeping meditation, even if you had a, uh, lots of thought meditation, at the end of it, generally there is a little, it's kind of there is a little release. And to me, each time we come back, each time we come back, each time we are with a question, in a way we have a, there is a little releasing happening, tiny, tiny, that we're not really 
aware of it, but which is happening. So that's what I would say. Anything else? Yeah. Um, is this clear awareness that you talk about, this skillful awareness, what they call uh, Sampajana, or Sampajana in the text? So the thing is that, uh, what is interesting with this quote is that actually the quote is basically translating the two terms, song song jok jok, as deep calm and clear awareness, which for me is very interesting. Because, I mean, uh, it's my friend Robert Burswell, who is a scholar, and he also knows the early text. And he decided, when I saw that he decided to translate song song jok jok that way, I was so pleased. Because then awareness came back in the Zen, the Sun tradition that way. So, uh, is it Sampajanya? I would say very likely, but here you have two systems. You have the Sun system, you have the early text system, and can you match them exactly? I don't know, in terms of like philology and things of that nature, but in terms of experience, I would say yes. I would say it seems to me that yes, this is an element. Either Dhamma Vichaya, either Sampajanya, something of that nature. That to me that's what they refer to, but since this, this is song, uh, generally they don't want footnotes, they don't want explanation. Like the first time Robert Buswell. Uh, this scholar who was a monk also with me in Korea for many years. When he did the first book on uh, Korean Zen called Nine Mountain, he put some footnotes. And, w- and, th- and they were so upset that he put some footnotes. You, you know, in Zen, you don't put footnotes. <laughs> but I think, you know, for a modern Western perspective, I would think it's very likely. It is Sampajan, very likely. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, it's a small comment, actually, I'm aware of yeah. the time, but it's just that I really appreciated your instructions this morning and this emphasis on kind of spaciousness and allowing. And I find this instruction that we concentrated on all yesterday or the day before, emptying the mind, not helpful in the sense that I don't think it's actually possible to empty the mind, especially as I notice that thoughts are not me, not mine. How could I? Because as long as I've got a brain, thoughts will pump out, just as my heart pumps blood out of the body kind of thing. So I think, I found anyway, give yourself a hard time trying not to think, but, uh, you know, but just allowing the, or relaxing around the fact that thoughts will arise and pass away is much more helpful and then you can see like the question as a means of creating space um, just for noticing what is there, which, which is kind of the answer which we can't prove no, no, I, I totally agree. You see, that's why I talk about inclusive concentration, so that there is a little looseness to it. Because I think, basically, concentration, there is a spectrum. In the whole Buddhist tradition, many people have different ideas about it. And also, I think there are different propensity. People have different ability with it. On this side, you have like concentration, which is really what I would call the exclusive concentration and on a narrow point and quite intense. 
Then on that side, you have silent elimination, Dzogchen, where you have no points, no <coughs> points, reference point whatsoever. And then on this side, it seems to me that one can become a little tense. On this side, I think sometimes they get a little spaced out. <laughs> and that's why I thought, possibly, how about the middle? A little foreground and some, you know, wideness, openness in the background. I, that's why I suggest it. And then people, if they need to, they can go a little this side. Or if they need to, they can go a little that side. Because I think it's really also what works for one in what circumstances. There is also, I don't know if I, uh, I possibly have not said it yet in this uh, retreat, but if you want a recipe for having no thought, I can give it to you. <laughs> I mean, if that's apart from anesthetic, of course. <laughs> that's a little extreme. But no, I can give you a recipe. Uh, you go for a month, you do a month's retreat in silence, and I can guarantee you by uh, 28th day, you have no thought. But you have no thought because nothing is happening. <laughs> you know. So, I mean, yes, I'm sure that that's possible. But is it the aim of the practice to have no thought? I don't think so. I think the aim of the practice is creative functioning of the human being. So, no, thank you for your comment. So, shall we try? <laughs>